For the week of Wednesday, October 17th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephan Coxlow. This week, the My Vote, My Voice video voter challenge and the community event promoting it. The event is happening Monday, October 22nd, and we will be talking this hour with some of the featured speakers and sponsors, including Washington State Poet Laureate Claudia Castro Luna, Tamina Watson, and Aaron Albanese of the Washington Immigrant Defense Network and Lawyer Moms of America, Kim Rackmeller of the voting app Vote With Us, and Casey Latchley, designer of the Trump Chicken. That's all ahead, so stay with us. So this week, you guys, we are devoting the entire show to a project that I am very excited about. It is the My Vote, My Voice Video Voter Challenge. It is designed to be the ice bucket challenge for voting, only without the ice and without the bucket. We are also having a big launch party for it at Optimism Brewery on Monday, October 22nd from 7 to 9 p.m., and we will have much more about that in just a second. But first, let's talk about the challenge because that is where you come in. So starting on Thursday, October 18th, we are challenging everybody to create a 60-second video talking about what your vote will say on November 6th. You will end the video by challenging three to five other people to make their own video, and you will tag them when you upload the video to Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or whatever social media platform you use, with the hashtag MyVoteMyVoice. Sounds pretty straightforward. This project is actually in conjunction with National Indivisible, MoveOn.org, and Robert Reich, and select videos will be broadcast on Robert Reich's Inequality Media, and will be shared shared via Indivisible's network across Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So that's the big news there. But uh, ultimately, it's just pretty fun and cathartic uh, to make your own video. So uh, let's check out some samples. So when we launched this project, we did put out a series of videos that were shot and edited by Derek Armstrong McNeil, who did the documentary The Road to Nicholsville. And just simply put, they're they're incredible. Uh, here is one featuring Anila Afzali. She is executive director of an initiative called Maps Amen. And by the way, she was just voted American Muslim of the Year by the Council of American Islamic Relations, which is a huge deal and very well-deserved. So congratulations to you, Anila. So here is the audio for Anila's video. My name is Anila. My vote is my voice. And this November, my vote says that we, the people, are greater than fear. My vote speaks for the aspirational ideals of our country and against policies like the Muslim ban, because we do not tell people how to pray and we should not ban people based on their religion. My vote speaks for the numerous families separated through cruel immigration policies, religiously discriminatory laws, the prison industrial complex, and more. My vote speaks loudly for peace, liberty, and justice for all, recognizing that our various struggles are connected. And my vote says that when we show up for each other, including at the voting booth, that we will win. My vote is my voice. So what does your vote say? Next, I'm going to play the video made by Indivisible Washington's 8th member, Alex Johnson, who, I should mention, is the person who instigated and helped create and launch this video project, along with the astoundingly amazing Maggie Cuevas and Kat Martin. And so here is the audio for Alex's video. Hi, my name is Alex, and my vote is my voice. This November 6th, I'm voting because for far too long, women have taken a backseat to the laws of men. For far too long, we have not had bodily autonomy. 
We have not been believed. We have not had equal representation in the House or the Senate or the White House. I'm voting because a hundred years ago, my voice would have been silenced even more because women didn't even have the right to vote. Just now, when I was trying to record this video about my right to vote and about my what my voice says as a woman, there were people in the park here playing music that was very offensive to me and to my rights as a woman and to my body. Just goes to show that we have to continue to fight for what we believe. I will fight and I will vote this November to put a woman in my congressional house seat and I hope you vote and do the same. So what does your vote say? So that's it. It's easy, right? Yeah, you got this. All of the instructions will be on the show page at indivisiblepodcast.org. But again, make a 60-second video about what your vote will say, tag three to five people, and post it up with a hashtag, MyVoteMyVoice. And like I say, select videos will be distributed by Indivisible and move on and broadcast by Robert Reich. So that's cool. All right, so let's talk next about the event. So again, the launch for the event is happening at Optimism Brewery in Seattle on Monday, October 22nd from 7 to 9 p.m. Optimism is one of the many great sponsors that we have for this event, along with the ACLU of Washington, Planned Parenthood, Lawyer Moms of America, Washington Immigration Solidarity Network, Washington Immigrant Defense Network, Civic Link, Vote With Me, Amplifier Art Lab. You can see their amazing donated artwork on the show page. Also, Indivisible Washington's 8th, Seattle Indivisible, KBCS 91.3 FM, and Cupcake Royale, in case my mom and wife needed any incentive to make the scene, which... They didn't, but in case you do, you know, hey, cupcakes. Uh, the event will also have an amazing lineup of speakers, including Anila Afzali, whom we just mentioned, uh, Washington State Poet Laureate Claudia Castro Luna, as well as Tamina Watson and Aaron Albanese of Wyden and Lawyer Moms, all of whom we will be speaking with in just a moment. And last but in no way least, our rock star Attorney General Bob Ferguson. Did I mention that he's sued the Trump administration 17 times? Yeah, so that guy. There will also be 60s and 70s soul and R&B from DJ Mega Booty of the KBCS show that I love, Mega Booty and Funk Scribe present. That is every Friday night from 7 to 9 p.m. And it is how Lori and I usually kick off our weekends. Uh, I will also mention that uh, I will be acting as MC for this event. So, you know, if we've never met in person, just come by and say hi. Okay, so I think that covers it. Wow, there's, there's actually never been this much me on the podcast before. Okay, then, on with the show. And we welcome first this week one of the featured speakers for the evening's event, and we are very happy to be welcoming her back to the program, Washington's fifth poet laureate, Claudia Castro Luna. Hello, Claudia. Hello. Thanks for having me. No, it's so great to talk to you again. So um, we'll talk a little bit about the My Vote, My Voice event in a moment, but uh, I just think listeners would love to hear what you've been up to uh, since we last spoke. I know you've been enormously busy. Um, Just briefly give us an idea of what your tenure has been like over the last few months, what you've been doing, where you've been going. Um, Well, it's been, um, yes, busy and really exciting traveling to really all, almost all corners of the state, um, me, you know, speaking at schools, community centers, uh, giving talks and readings at bookstores. I visited um, in Walla Walla, for instance, I visited the penitentiary there. And in Orcas Island, I got a chance to do a reading at the farmer's market and encounter 
encountered a thriving, a small, a very small, but thriving Salvadoran community oh, wow. in, in Orcas Island, which was really interesting. Um, and I just got back, let's see, I was up in Twisp, um, in Okanagan County, two weeks ago, and then in Anderson Island. So the last trip I did was Anderson Island, which I believe is the southernmost island in Puget Sound. So you really have been all over the state. I, I know that you, with well, the last time we spoke, uh, we were sort of talking about all the miles that you'd be putting on your car, and it sounds like you've been uh, definitely, you know, kind of putting your car through its paces. Um, so, you know, I'm curious to kind of get an idea when you're out talking with people, um, what the general mood is right now as we get close to the, the midterm election, because politics is, is certainly on everybody's mind right now. How much does politics come up when you talk with people? And, and really, what's your latitude to discuss politics as State Poet Laureate? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. Um, you know, it doesn't, it hasn't come up, frankly, as a direct um, question in any of the forums I've been to. I think um, what I normally say if or, or what I've said is that I find it really inspiring and hopeful to have rooms of people gathered to hear words. So, you know, poetry builds communities, readings bring people who normally wouldn't go. It's outside of the normal day. And here we are at 5.30 p.m. in a bookstore mm. Um, together, building community, being in community, sharing something that is hopeful and um, and beautiful, you know, and that really heartens me. So I think that that is the extent of how that how I've addressed that. Um, there haven't been any direct questions about my positioning on anything that is political. This last week, maybe because the elections are getting closer. Two people did say, please vote. Mm. Um, and that was, you know, that's that's been the extent of it. Of course, the position itself is a nonpartisan, nonpolitical position. So I think that it is understood that that is not what what we're there to do. Sure. And perhaps that is because that is why we I haven't um, we have not engaged in a you know, in a political conversation. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the people uh, saying please vote is, is very much in line with what the My Vote, My Voice project is, is really all about. It's 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 really encouraging people in a nonpartisan way to get out and vote. And so in in that way, uh, you're sort of the perfect speaker um, for, for this uh, this event. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because you talk about poetry building community, and we talked about this uh, the last time that we spoke, about how poetry can really help at a time like this. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm getting the sense that there is a hopefulness that is coming uh, from people really just gathering and maybe kind of taking a break and, and taking solace in the, in, in the written word. Yes, I, I do think that there may be some of that, uh, of, of taking a break. I also think that there is something about poetry being honest. You know, people ask me sometimes, what is a poem? And I um, respond that a poem is a truth that for a, an artifact, a, you know, a, a, po a poem is a linguistic artifact. And for it mm. to be a poem, it has to hold some kind of truth, the writer's truth. 
And that is when we read a poem and we feel that moment at the end of the poem that we, we have an aha moment or in a reading you hear, ah, or there's some expression of understanding um, or sympathy or connection with the writer in that sense. And, um, and that's because it's so condensed and so carefully crafted. I think that, you know, it's all about words and words matter. And that, that is what poetry is. And in our current climate where there's so much um, mistrust and obfuscation and misinformation, I think that there is some sort of a, a respite and a turning to something that is a lot more more honest, as I said, you know? Yeah. I mean, the truth is actually refreshing, really. Uh, and, you know, I've sort of felt for years that uh, I, I think you can tell a lot more about a society uh, by its creative works than often you can by its historians. Uh, and so, yeah, I think you're sort of leading into that. Um, I, I want to ask about your meeting with Governor Jay Inslee back in April. Um, and you wrote that he was very knowledgeable about poetry and he even wrote a poem in your presence. So uh, yes. yeah, tell us about that experience. Yes, he did. Well, I, a part of the becoming the laureate is having an official meeting with the governor because it is a gubernatorial appointee. Um, and we serve in a way as at his behest, right? So if he were to require from the laureate a poem uh, for some state function, then we um, are obliged to, you know, to do so. And so... Um, he had read some of my poems and we talked about poetry and it was spring. So the quad outside his office, you could see the tips of the longest branches breaking into bloom as we were sitting in his room. And um, at one point he said, why don't, we, why don't we write a haiku? And I said, oh yeah, sure, we could write a haiku, but I, I never imagined he meant let's do it right now. <laughs> and he said, so let's write a haiku. And I said, sure, of course. And then he grabbed his pen and he started writing. Mm. He just looked out the window and started writing. And I, and I realized then, oh, he meant right now, let's write a haiku. <laughs> but before I could even get my pen out, he, was, he, had, he had a composition and he showed it to me and it had the required you know, number of syllables. And it was this great haiku about spring and, and bloom, you know, early blooms and so on it was i was just amazed that he well i was amazed that he had that he knew um you know the correct form that he was willing to do it that he was so spontaneously inspired that way that he could actually write something on the spot and i wrote a blog piece about it because the washington state poet laureate keeps there's a blog that uh, that we keep. And so I wrote a post about it and posted the actual haiku in his writing on the blog so people could read that if they're curious. Yeah, he actually wrote it in the margin of uh, Emerald City Blues, your uh, your poem yes. that you read on the show uh, the last yes. time we spoke. Yes, exactly. He, he had selected that poem and he had it printed in front of him and he wanted me to tell him about the poem. And then when he came, when he came to writing the, the haiku, he just he just wrote it on that on that paper. Yeah. 
Oh, man, I love that. And it's got to be just a, uh, oh, probably a wonderful surprise to serve under somebody who really uh, appreciates and gets poetry. Uh, so, you know, I, just uh, one last question that I, I kind of wanted to ask you because it's been uh, since we last spoke, uh, the immigration crisis at the border has grown so much worse uh, with the Trump administration having ordered uh, children of asylum seekers to be separated from their families. And, and in fact, thousands of children are still missing and or are currently in detention. And I know that uh, you yourself came here as an immigrant uh, with your family from El Salvador. And I'm, I've wondered what must have been coming up for you as you've heard about these these family separations and the, the subsequent uh, fallout for, for these people. Yeah, I mean, it's been extremely difficult, um, unimaginable, because it, it, it recalls my own experience coming as a youth which was already traumatic and very difficult. And I can't imagine uh, enduring that under the circumstances that those children are experiencing, which is thousands times worse than, than I ever experienced. Uh, so yes, it's been, it's been very hard personally to, to watch that unfold. And um, I've done, I've done two readings, one in Vashon Island that was put together by Marina Hecht, who's serving as the Vashon Island Poet Laureate, um, where we did a reading um, in support of the families that have been torn apart. And it was really an extraordinary reading. It was packed. Um, and there were several of us who read, I myself and Myrna, and uh, there were three other poets who read. Um and the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project was there and they talked a little bit about the work they do. And it was just a very, it's again, another opportunity to come together as a community because I think that people feel compelled to do something, but we don't know what to do. You know, it's not, it's not an easy thing that you could, what we could call our representatives, I guess. But besides that, um, so it was it felt very um it was a moment of catharsis and feeling useful and feeling um that you know that we were together and at that particular reading i said um i said a few words to the to the uh, you know to to recap what you just said which i come from el salvador and therefore this reading is very uh touched touched me deeply and that when i was Back in 81, when my family was coming from El Salvador, there were a lot of citizens in the U.S. who opposed the war, which was being supported by the U.S. government. Um, and it was very heartening then to know that there were people who opposed what was happening to, to our country. And it felt like we were not alone. It felt like people were watching and we were not alone. And that was huge. Um, and this time around, so 30 years later, here we are in a similar circumstance, or I find myself now on the outside of that because I am not the, I'm not the kid coming in or escaping terrible circumstances. And what I find is, and, and I said this for people, that we were there to support these kids, to tell them they're not alone, but we're also there for ourselves because in coming forward in an event like that, you, you reassert your humanity. And that that is how I feel. You know, I'm doing this for 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 the kids, but I'm also doing it for myself because I have empathy, because I'm human, because I feel 
for the pain of others. And I, um, you know, I wish it were different. This shouldn't have to be this way. This should, this shouldn't be that way. And it was a, it was a discovery for me to learn that it is not just a one-way street. You know, we're not just helping them. We are helping ourselves in that process. Yeah. And this is another example, as you say, of poetry building community and also poetry's ability to uh, express what is often uh, inexpressible uh, in other ways. True. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, I, uh, as, as I mentioned at the top, you're going to be uh, one of the featured speakers at the My Vote, My Voice event on the 22nd. And of course, this is a nonpartisan position. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I initially wanted to ask you about what voting means to you. But in the spirit of My Vote, My Voice uh, and the Voter Challenge, um, I will ask you what your vote will say, because uh, I think that's a more appropriate thing to ask a poet. Um, so uh, on November 6th, what will your vote say? So my vote will say that I value community and I value my my co-citizens and that I take being citizen and involved in the civic life of my local community and my state community and my countries at large um, that I that I honor and take that responsibility that I fully take that responsibility because I've also been um Outside of that, before I became a citizen, I was unable to vote. And as soon as I became a citizen, I have voted in every election, local and state and national election, because I think it's really important. And I think it's really important not to um, fall into cynicism. I think that democracy works when we all honor our you know, our responsibility and privilege to vote. And if we fail to do that, then... Um, then we're not only uh, we're doing a disservice to ourselves and to the to the community at large. Does that make sense? It, yeah. It, not only does it make sense, I think it's extraordinarily well put, and I would have expected nothing less. So uh, we, <laughs> oh, we are God. very lucky to to have you as our poet laureate, and we're very fortunate to uh, to be having you speak at the My Vote My Voice event. So uh, everybody, come out and and hear uh, Claudia Castro Luna on the twenty second. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we look forward to seeing you on the twenty second. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to being there. Next, we welcome back to the show Tamina Watson and Aaron Albanese. Tamina is a nationally renowned immigration attorney and founder of the Washington Immigrant Defense Network, or WIDEN. She is also host of her own podcast, Tamina Talks Immigration. Hello, Tamina. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And Aaron is a nonprofit and business attorney and co-founder of both Wyden and Lawyer Moms of America. And both will be featured speakers at the My Vote, My Voice event on the 22nd. Hello, Aaron. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You guys, I just I want to just dive in and talk about some of the incredible work that you've both been doing on behalf of immigrants and immigrant families. Um, as I just mentioned in my uh, interview with Claudia Castro Luna, Thousands of immigrant children are still separated from their parents or guardians after being separated at the border. And uh, one of the biggest successes with uh, lawyer moms has been in reuniting some of these children with their families. So, uh, Aaron, talk a little bit about some of the work that lawyer moms has been doing here. Sure. We have, um, to date, used about 1 million pledged donated airline miles and about $2,000 in fees and uh, vouchers 
to pay for 50 flights, and that includes reuniting separated families, other urgent immigration or immigrant travel needs, and volunteer attorney travel. Um, we recently have seen more kids who are being reunited with their families in their countries of origin. Mm. So the ACLU and other NGOs that are on the ground in countries like Ecuador and um, Honduras and Guatemala are finding the previously deported parents and um, we're able to work with um, other groups on the ground here in the U.S. to uh, locate a chaperone and to fly the kids back to their parents. Yeah, it's uh, falling to NGOs and ACLU to kind of, you know, do the the work of locating a lot of these families and kind of well, cleaning up the mess that uh, the Trump administration made. And, you know, it's it's I think you're you're sort of hinting at something that it's, it's a little bittersweet that the families are being reunited, but the they're being reunited in the circumstances that they initially fled. Right. Absolutely. Um, so it is a bittersweet. It's exactly the word that I would use. Um, so we're we're so glad to get the photos of the families being together once again. And it's um, it's so awful for a child to be in custody and to especially to be in custody without their parents uh, for months at a time, which is what yeah. we're seeing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's horrifying, and uh, again, just tremendous work that, that you're doing there. Uh, Lawyer Moms is also working on organizing public comment initiatives in response to a couple of the things that the Trump administration has been doing. Uh, first, uh, the DOJ is attempting to get rid of the Flores settlement, and that's the uh, the rule that prohibits the federal government from keeping children in detention centers for more than 20 days. And they are also looking to make changes to the so-called public charge policy, which can deny immigration green cards if there is a suspicion that they might avail themselves of programs like Medicaid or SNAP. Um, Erin, talk about what Lawyer Moms is is doing here. Thanks. We are coordinating an effort to maximize the number of public comments on both of those initiatives. So um, as you mentioned, the changes to the Flores settlement would clear the way for children to be held indefinitely in unsafe conditions. And, uh, you know, studies have shown how potentially psychologically damaging that can be even for a short period of time. Um, The public comments to that are due on November 6th. So we'll be publishing a toolkit on our website and on our Facebook page at Lawyer Moms of America for how individuals can uh, make a public comment before those um, proposed rules are enacted. And uh, the other one, um, that you mentioned the regulations limiting visas and green cards to immigrants who um, the administration believes may take um, advantage of um, public assistance. And it's a very low level of public assistance um, and certainly widening the scope of public assistance programs um, that people might be using. Um, And those comments are due on December 10th. And again, we'll have um, a toolkit for commentary posted on our website and on our Facebook page. Good. And of course, I'll make sure that that is available at indivisiblepodcast.org for people who want to make comments about both of those issues. So, uh, Tamina, let's bring you in here. Um, I do want to talk about the launch and the work of the Washington Immigrant Defense Network, or WIDEN. Um, You are the president. This project has its seeds in the wake of Trump's travel ban back in 2017 when you were trying to dispatch pro bono lawyers to 
to the SeaTac Airport. And you and Aaron actually met at the protest at the SeaTac Detention Center following the DOJ's family separation policy, the so-called zero tolerance policy. Talk a little bit about Widen and what it does. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about this. It's a, it's a, it's a very important time for an organization like Widen to exist. And so what we saw uh, in the wake of the travel ban and times that followed from there, that there were non-immigration lawyers that have been looking for a vehicle in which they can help these crisis situations. And what we found on the immigration lawyer front is that we're just overworked, overstressed, completely, you know, without time. And those who do removal defense work uh, are, are very limited in numbers. In in Washington State, for example, we have just over 500 immigration lawyers. But if you look at those who are in the immigration court on a regular basis, you're probably looking at less than 50 immigration lawyers. Mm. Now, if you look at the problems that we are facing, 50 immigration lawyers is not enough. There might be about uh, 150 lawyers who do some immigration removal defense, you know, but it's in conjunction with other things. So it's not their daily practice. So Wyden came along because I was leading a, a committee through the local Immigration Lawyers Association, essentially trying to mobilize lawyers in different situations after the travel ban, where organizations, um, various entities will come to uh, come to me requesting lawyers to be provided for certain, you know, pro bono clinics, for example. And I knew the day would come where somebody will request 30 lawyers for an immigration court, and I would not be able to provide that. So it took about 18 months to develop this program where we would essentially take an immigration lawyer, pay them a low bono fee, group them uh, with two non-immigration lawyers, and then give that group a detained immigration case. So, as you said, Erin uh, um, and I had, uh, we had met uh, it, earlier this year at a, a different lawyer mother uh, event where I had mentioned that a nonprofit was percolating in my mind. And so when we had actually gone to that protest together, Erin uh, was very kind. She uh, responded to a request to sit in a, a bouncy house with my six-year-old. Mm. And we were there for the entire evening, you know, just talking about what this could look like. And at the end of it, Erin said, you know, why haven't you done it yet? Let me take the nonprofit side of things away from you and you do the immigration things that you need to do. And so that was a Saturday, June 9th, I believe. And then June 10th, she incorporated us. And June 11th is when we started our pilot program. What we found through our pilot program is not only that non-immigration lawyers have been looking for a vehicle to help, non-lawyers have been looking for a vehicle to help as well. How do you help that distressed immigrant uh, who's got no path? in the future to, mm -hmm. to stay in the country. And so the, through the pilot program, we realized that uh, people have skills. Everybody's got some skill. And we found that the community members helped uh, house, transport, clothes, and feed our clients. And then, of course, Erin... Um, with Lawyer Moms of America and the enormous community that exists within that of 18,000 people, uh, people from all walks of life actually stepped in and helped us. When we needed a lawyer in a different state, somebody stepped up and said, I can help. When we needed a community member in a different state to help our clients, uh, people stepped up. So what we found 
that the lawyer minds of America and Widen have uh, an innate um, collaborative, sure. um, yeah. you know, you know, we have this, we have this joint at the hip thing. You, know? you have synergy and, between what you're both doing, for sure. Very much, yeah. very much. So Widen is essentially responding to the needs that exist using the, the skills of all people, but using the immigration lawyers uh, in a way in which they can actually help because they are not in a position to help on the scale that is necessary. Well, I think that's that's tremendous. And, you know, just to be clear, and this is something that people may not be aware of, immigrants are not guaranteed representation uh, in this country. And so what you're doing is, is vital on that front. And then, of course, you're, as you've said, bringing in other people who may not necessarily have a law background and are helping out in many other ways. Uh, so I know there are people listening who would like to get involved. Uh, I know your greatest need is for funding, uh, so we'll certainly call on people to donate. But uh, you're looking for volunteers too, right? We are. We are. So our website is www.widenlaw, that's W-I-D-E-N-L-A-W.org. Widenlaw.org. So anybody who uh, wants to learn more can go to our website. On our website, they can donate funds to us, but there are also links for signing up to volunteer. What are you looking for people to uh, to help out with right now? Well, at this very moment, we actually do need a lot of money. We're sort of in the chicken and egg situation. Without money, we can't take more cases. Without more cases, we can't have the people, you know, uh, in the trenches. So money is, at this point, our primary primary need. Um, but we also need people. We need volunteers to help Erin and myself with some of the basic juggling of an organization. You know, Erin has her full-time job. I have my full-time job. Erin is a mother. I'm a mother. We have a lot of other, you know, competing priorities. Sure. But this is just as important. So midnight to 5 a.m. is when Widen gets done. But we need a lot of other people to help us with just the administrative tasks. But when a case comes in, uh, we need to, we will need somebody to coordinate uh, the volunteers. But we need uh, all types of skills. You know, in a in an immigration case, there is always the need for um, interpreters. We need uh, you know psychological evaluators, mental health evaluators, even doctors. Sometimes uh, we need a network of people, which is why we're called the network, Washington Immigrants Defense Network. And so, anybody who has been looking for a vehicle to help this situation can find a way to actually help us. And what we what we eventually will do with these little teams that we will create, we will add uh, um, non lawyers as well. Because, you know, a lot of work that goes into a case is administrative sometimes. You need to hole punch. You need to hole punch the brief. You need to paginate the brief. It needs to be in certain ways. You can't use whiteout sometimes. There's a lot of administrative tasks that can be done by a a non-lawyer, a non-immigration lawyer. And so we will be looking for that type of help as well. And so help can be, we, we need help in all sorts of um, forms and uh, ways and skills are necessary. But right this moment, because we have received our nonprofit 
specification. Money is our biggest need. Absolutely understood. Yeah, and I will make sure that uh, the link for widenlaw.org is available for people on the website at indivisiblepodcast.org. So I'd just like to close on uh, the issue that is bringing us all together, and that is inspiring people to vote. So uh, I will ask both of you about your thoughts on the importance of voting, uh, especially in this midterm. Um, Erin, what is going to be driving your vote in November? I'm voting for the children who we haven't been able to connect to their parents yet and um, people um, like them who are don't have a voice because they are not citizens, because they are not adults. And so I am voting to be their voice. That's wonderful. And Tamina, what will your vote say on November 6th? You know, my vote is to hold on to our democracy. Um, as an immigration attorney, I'm seeing the fallback of these policies on a day-in and day-out basis, not just the children, but every single type of case, whether it's an H-1B or a family-based spouse petition, you name it. Um, but, you know, if I look at uh, our country as a whole, and I have children, my children's education matters to me. My children's health matters to me. And so I'll be voting for having representatives who care about all of us, not just the 1%. Wonderful. Well, I'm, you know, I'm still going to hit both of you up to make videos. So just you, you've been put on notice. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, Tamina Watson, Aaron Albanese, uh, thank you again for coming back. And thanks for all your uh, incredible work. And we'll see you at the event on the 22nd. Thank you. Thanks so much thank for you having so us. Thank you so much. And we talk next with Kim Rackmeller, who is the director of engineering at the New Data Project, creators of the app Vote With Me. And they're one of the great sponsors who will be at the My Vote, My Voice event. Kim Rackmeller, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, so I want to talk about the New Data Project in a moment and what you're doing collectively. But first, let's talk about the Vote With Me app. So this is an app that accesses your personal network and it produces a list of what your website calls the highest impact potential voters in your address book so that you can remind them to vote. So, you know, I'm curious how the algorithm works. I mean, how does Vote With Me determine who is the highest impact potential voter in your database? Uh, what What's that based on? Well, the uh, let's start with uh, how this comes to, to happen. You download the app, and then you give us permission to look at your phone contacts. We map those contacts to publicly available voter records, and then we annotate them with interesting information, like uh, party affiliation is your, your contact on Team Blue. Uh, can they vote in a critical election? Uh, one potentially with a a chance to change the control of Congress or a state or a governorship? And finally, uh, do they maybe have not the best voting record in the sense of perhaps they've been a little spotty and actually showing up? And so by giving you those facts, we put the power in your hands to decide who it is that you should reach out to. So you would be able to find people in your phone who are likely to vote Democratic, who can vote in a critical race, and who might need a little encouragement to get to the polls. Then you you send them a text and encourage them to vote. 
and it is the the, the people with the the lower lowish propensity for turning out for elections who often can make the difference. Um, this seems uh, similar to uh, what's called the van, which anybody who is out there canvassing right now will be familiar with. And this is uh, similar voter data that uh, people will use when they go canvassing or when they uh, are phone banking and things like that. Um, just to be clear, and I, I think we're clear on this, but I just want listeners to to know this. It is the person with the app who does the reminding, not your company or the app itself, right? That's exactly right. And this is why Vote With Me is effective, is that it is the individual reaching out to people they know. They are the ones making the contact. They're the ones sending the message. Uh, They can edit the message. We give them suggestions about what to say, but they can say whatever they want because they know these people the best. They know what it is that uh, motivates them. And so this personal outreach is what makes this so much more effective than the standard campaigning techniques, which is really about strangers getting in touch with you. And you're talking there about canvassing and phone banking. And, you know, the site claims that Vote With Me, uh, what it does is 20 times more powerful than traditional get-out-the-vote methods. Um, you, you know, so you're talking essentially about, you know, person-to-person. Uh, when, when a friend would recommend that uh, you vote, that's obviously going to weigh more, as you say, than strangers. But uh, I, I'm curious about the 20 times more powerful. How is that quantified? So this was from data that was gathered uh, from the 2016 election in door-to-door canvassing and phone banking and text banking versus a uh, field trial that we did in the special election in Pennsylvania uh, in March. And so it's going to vary by mechanism. But you can you can easily say, uh, depending on which kind of thing that you are doing, that vote with me is anywhere from two to 20 times as effective as the standard campaigning techniques. And the nice thing about it is that it isn't an either or situation. You can still do all the get out the vote things that people are currently doing. And, you know, bless your heart for doing that. Um, and then when you've, uh, you know, come in from uh, hitting the pavement, um, sit down and send a couple texts. Or when you're getting together at the campaign office and eating pizza, get together and, and, and encourage some people to download the app. It's not um, a replacement for things that you're doing. It is uh, an easy addition because Vote With Me is free for anyone to use. So you don't have to be Uh, volunteering for a campaign to get access, which a lot of the tools that we're describing you do. Yeah. So it's just basically another arrow in the quiver, uh, as it were, for people who are are activists. I'm curious to know if you have had any uh, personal experiences of being able to uh, entice maybe a a low propensity voter in your own personal network to, uh, to get out and vote. I have had some really interesting conversations. Um, For starters, you know, before I was able to see the data uh, that Vote With Me uh, shows you, my assumption was that everybody I know votes. They all vote all the time. They know it's important. And then you see. (laughs) (laughs) It's an eye-opening experience, yeah. And and there are revelations uh, to be had there. So, uh, yes, I have have reached out to some folks and said – 
um, hey, uh, I, um, I was wondering if you were going to be voting this time around. And they know exactly what I'm talking about. And they're like, I was traveling. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yes. Um, so, it, so you've seen it work personally. I certainly have. That's and awesome. uh, I've also seen the, uh, the tremendous enthusiasm that people have for voting uh, in this cycle. Uh, I think every time an election comes around, people say, this is the most important election in my lifetime. Uh, but golly, I do believe it's true. I think you're uh, you're in good company there. I think pretty much everybody listening to this podcast would agree with you. Um, so let's talk just briefly about the New Data Project, which is the parent company. So the executive director, Mikey Dickerson, uh, is an engineer who was personally summoned by President Obama to help rescue the healthcare.gov site uh, when it crashed. Um, your deputy executive director, Sarah Sullivan, spent six years with the Obama White House as a senior writer. You yourself lead the Seattle team. And you spent uh, 10 years with Amazon as uh, VP and CIO at various levels. You also have two degrees in electrical engineering from Stanford. Uh, The New Data Project seems to be bringing together the best of the worlds of politics and technology. Uh, Is that the general idea? Uh, About half the team met when we were working for the United States Digital Service. Um, The USDS uh, was the outgrowth of the healthcare.gov rescue when President Obama saw what some uh, people from techies from private industry could do to help out the government with getting better at software development and software delivery. And so he asked Mikey to found and be the administrator of the U.S. Digital Service and a bunch of us came in from uh, from private uh, practice uh, to join and try to help the federal government get better. Uh, I, in fact, came out of retirement uh, to join. Oh, wow. um, so uh, we met each other uh, while we were all working together in D.C. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, everybody in uh, the USDS uh, – there were no mercenaries because there's no money in it. Everyone was a missionary. And so it makes it uh, really uh, powerful to work with a group of people like that. So these were folks who had experience in uh, government. They were people who were coming in from uh, the tech world. And so together we were trying to move the needle uh, for the, for the feds. And then of course, 2016 happened uh, and uh, a bunch of us left uh, and when I left D.C., I told Mikey that if he came up with an idea that he thought was worth doing, uh, that he should give me a call. And late last year, he did. And so I pulled a team together in Seattle. And here we are. Well, it's very exciting. Uh, and, you know, in addition to vote with me, I think it's going to be very exciting to see uh, what uh, your well-credentialed minds come up with next. Um, you know, I'll just close by asking you uh, something that I think is on the, the mind of a lot of people, uh, and that is just a wariness generally about the intersection of politics and technology in 2018, uh, particularly as it's played out on social media. Um, you know, I think the 2016 election is a, is, is a pretty stark example. I, I'm curious to get your take. This, as I say, is a very big question, but are you hopeful that the benefits of technology can outweigh the potential for its abuses in electoral politics? Yeah, this is a very hard problem. Uh, and, and when I say this is a very hard problem, that's really dramatically understating it. Mm. Um, I will say a couple things, though. Uh, if anybody comes to you and says, uh, voting online would be awesome, 
run <laughs> away. Um, absolutely not. Electronic voting, no. Um, let's, uh, let's rely on paper ballots uh, or at least paper backup. Uh, vote by mail is terrific, uh, but electronic voting, no. Uh, that, is, that is not a good idea. Uh, blockchain be damned. So uh, that I feel pretty strongly about. Yeah. Uh, with respect to social media, um, there is tremendous power in organizing. And many of the, uh, the progressive groups uh, that I'm certainly familiar with use Facebook extensively and would be worse off if something like Facebook were not available to them. But um, as someone who is uh, advertising on Facebook uh, to get people to use Vote With Me, uh, it's like a pit of rabid weasels. Um, it's really, really ugly yeah. and very difficult to moderate. So uh, it's not clear to me what sorts of tools or approaches allow you to have the benefits of bringing people together for causes without having the, um, shall we say, uh, wild west of trolls and bots. Yeah. Um, but I do think that it is worth attempting. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's there's a balance to be struck, and and it's it it's a very very thorny question. But I, I think, as you point out very fairly, uh, you know, a, a group like Indivisible simply would not exist uh, without Facebook specifically. So, again, a balance to be struck. Uh, but uh, we're very excited to have Vote with me as a sponsor at uh, My Vote My Voice, uh, and attendees can talk to you and learn more about the work that you do uh, there. So, Kim Rockmeller, thank you so much for the sponsorship, and thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Stefan. So if you have been to a protest in the Seattle area over the last couple of years, you have probably seen the Trump chicken, which is basically an enormous white balloon in the shape of a chicken that looks like Trump, complete with the hair and everything. Uh, and it turns out there are uh, a few of these floating around. Uh, and so uh, one of them will actually be making an appearance at the My Vote, My Voice event. And I thought that it would be fun uh, to end this week by talking with the designer of the Trump chicken, Casey Lachelet. Hey, Casey. Hey, how's it going? Good, man. So, you know, tell us a little bit about the genesis of the Trump chicken. Uh, it's my understanding that you didn't set out to make a giant balloon. It was originally designed for a, a Chinese client in celebration of the, the year of the rooster, is, uh, is my understanding. That's right. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I had such a disdain for the spectacle of, you know, the election like so many people, yeah. um, you know, I'm a designer, so I wanted a way to express my frustration. So for years I had had this idea for like dictator. Okay. I just thought it was a funny pun. <laughs> uh, I wasn't sure if it was going to be like a Halloween costume of like Fidel Castro with like a potato dick or something like that. But like, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't like fully there yet, but once, you know, the, election was happening and i was like oh perfect like i'll just make trump as a mr potato head this is right. awesome so i made that uh i was told up and down by many lawyers that i would quote get the shit suit out of me if i tried to make this an actual desk toy <laughs> so i just uh you know made it as a digital design and put it up on my portfolio kind of like just let it sit there for a while so um you know a few, few weeks later i got a super cryptic email mostly in broken english that uh, they wanted to hire me, this Chinese company wanted to hire me for some character design to commemorate the year of the rooster. They mentioned they loved my designs. They kept saying sculpture. Um, I, I 
was fairly certain. I was like, oh, there's something lost in translation here. I thought it was just going to be like a five foot thing they were going to put in a mall or something like that. Um, and they never explicitly asked me to design it to look like Trump. They just not so subtly hinted that they really loved dictator. So I was like, okay, cool. I got it. So designed that, uh, sent it off. And this was in October. So it was before he was even elected. And I, like most people, thought there's no way this is going to happen. I was like, these guys are idiots. Like, how can they want this design? Like, there's no way. Um, so that's when the rooster slash chicken design came out, submitted it. Uh, yeah, waited for like three months. So in January, I saw a CNN article, or I think it was a tweet that, you know, showed a picture of the rooster statue. And I was floored. I like, there's no way I thought it was going to be like that. So you didn't know ahead of time before you saw it being broadcast on TV that it had been made into a 30 foot statue in Beijing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they, they didn't really tell me what it was going to be. You know, they just wanted the design and they kept saying sculpture, but you know, I, like I had seen plenty of things in malls and I tried to do research and stuff. And like, I was like, what, I mean, what is this going to be like? Is this going to be like someone dressing up in a mascot of this? Like, I had no idea. Well, yeah. So, well, then let's talk about uh, the transition from there to it becoming uh, the mascot in balloon yeah. form for the tax march that happened back in April. Uh, that was where people were protesting Trump for not releasing his tax returns. Um, talk about how that came about. Yeah. So after the design was made and I would assume it was put up in a statue, someone thought it would be a great idea in China to make an inflatable out of it. Uh, so as far as I can tell, it's not the same company that hired me. So Danelle Morton reached out to me after she started seeing the inflatables. And as far as I could tell, she was the catalyst for, you know, the tax march going on in San Francisco. Uh, at this point, I was kind of in awe that my design could kind of affect people so much. And I was thrilled that it could be like championed by other people beyond its original intent. Yeah. Crazy. Like, that's the best thing that any designer could ask for. Yeah, for sure. So as soon as I heard of the tax march in San Francisco, decided to book a trip down there. This was the first time I had been to San Francisco. Uh, so I did not realize that these protests are a very regular thing. Um <laughs> I later found out that there was a march in Seattle. So I was pretty bummed that I couldn't go to that. But little did I know that this, you know, would continue forward. Well, yeah. And in fact, one was displayed in Washington, D.C. and was visible from the White House, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so after the tax march, uh, I maybe it was like six months or so later, uh, a guy named Taryn Brar decided to pick up the torch of it. He spoke to me about his plans to put the chicken on the lawn by the White House. And I really admire his determination and his research because he was telling me he, you know, was watching Fox News and watching footage of the White House. And he's like, "Okay, that's the spot on the grass that I can put it and they will show it on their program. So he he actually did so much research on that. And like that was insane. Well, it's super impressive, and I will just mention what I said at the top of the show, and that is that one of the balloons is going to be making an appearance at the My Vote, My Voice event. So if you wanted to see it up close, this is your opportunity. So, you know, just in closing, I will mention, um, since you talked earlier about being concerned uh, about being sued, uh, you just launched a toy design featuring the Trump chicken called the Twitterd, uh, T-U-R-D. Uh, you want to tell us about that? 
Sure. Yeah. Uh, first I just want to mention that, uh, the inflatable chicken in Seattle, uh, it popped up on boats around there. So like, just want to say that was amazing. Kat Martin, she's awesome at organizing all this stuff. She calls herself the chicken wrangler. So yes, yeah, is, absolutely. I <laughs> uh, just wanted to give a shout out to her because she's amazing. Well, she's listening. Um, so she, she just great. heard you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Twitter. So Twitter came about about two years ago, trying to make something tangible happen. So I got so many requests from people that wanted a 3d print of, uh, the, chicken or like some sort of vinyl toy and you know i designed it but i still i reserved the artist rights to it but didn't actually have the rights to create anything from it uh so wanted to make something that was a bit more of a statement than than just the chicken so borrowed from my own design and created a toy that embodies number 45's favorite activity tweeting uh on the toilet listening yep for those (laughs) listening who haven't seen it it's the basically a trump chicken tweeting on a golden toilet yeah. So myself and my business partner, Kevin Kelly, we kind of wanted to bridge the gap of making it a blue Twitter bird, but having also the option of the white version as well. So you've lost the fear of being sued then, apparently. Yeah, uh, I've been been assured that we are fine. <laughs> Excellent. So, now, is this something that's going to be available uh, that people can buy? Yeah. So right now um, we have a Kickstarter that we're going for right now because this is a completely different avenue for me and learned quite a lot. So in that two years, you know, talking with lawyers, making sure I'm not sued, prototyping, talking with manufacturers, and it's such a long process. Uh, and we wanted to make it as cheap as possible on Kickstarter. So because of that, unfortunately, we have to order a lot of them. So we have to order like 5,000 of them. And I believe the price right now is between 25 and $27 if you wanted to buy one. But that means our goal is about $70,000. So you know, realistically, we only need like 2,000 people to buy it, and then you can have one of these little turds in your in your home. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, you heard it here first, and I'll have a link uh, in the show notes at indivisiblepodcast.org for people to check out for that. Uh, just real quickly before you go, um, we have been speaking with everybody today about the importance of voting. That's really what this event is all about. So uh, I'd love to just sort of get your take on the importance of, of voting for you, especially in, in this election. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll admit this is probably the first time I'll have voted in midterm elections and shame on me, but I am super determined and I live in California now. I don't even have a California driver's license, but damn it, I registered to vote as soon as I got down here Good man. because I knew how important this was. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not going to say that people can't complain about politics, but you can't vote. But I mean, come on, it's this is like they're most of the time they're mail in ballots. It's not even that difficult. And this is like a turning point for us, you know, like we need to show the monsters that this is not the will of the people and they don't give a about you if you don't vote. Well, that's a perfect place to leave. You get the last word this week. Casey Latchelet, designer of the Trump chicken. Thanks so much, man. Thank you, man. So that will do it for this week's show. For links to everything that we talked about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there, too. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Drop me a line. And the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. with production assistance from Cecilia Knob. Thanks again to my guests, Claudia Castro-Luna, Tamina Watson, and Aaron Albanese, Kim Rackmiller, and Casey Latchelet. Hope to see videos from all you guys. And I hope to see you at the event at Optimism Brewery on Monday the 22nd. But as always, thanks to you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.